The CBF Podcast Conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theological education. Learn from Fuller's seasoned scholar practitioners with online classes and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next step in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. 2020 is off to a great start for the CBF podcast with guests like Father Thomas Reese, Soong Chang Ra, and Casey Van Norman. We also have a lot of exciting episodes ahead, including interviews with Eugene Cho, Sarah Bessie, and our week in D.C. at Advocacy in Action. Don't forget that you can be a part of supporting the podcast while receiving some great benefits, such as joining an interview with an upcoming guest, books from authors interviewed, and a VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly. We want to thank William Johnson and Cindy Folendor for their monthly support of the podcast. Check out how you can support at cbf.net backslash podcast support. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Eugene Cho. Eugene is the founding and former pastor of Quest Church in Seattle, Washington, and he's recently named president for Bread for the World. He's the author of a new book, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Eugene, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, before we get to uh, the book, we've got to talk about the big news. Um, in, in March, it was announced that you are stepping down from Quest Church to become the president of Bread for the World. How was how all this settling in after a few weeks? Uh, yeah, there are some big news and big uh, transitions happening. Uh, and it's actually been ongoing for at least a year and a half, to be honest with you. I stepped down from Quest Church about 14 months ago, my wife and I planted this church in the year 2000, and um, uh, it's something that we love so dearly, but we just sensed that God was calling us to move on and passed off the church to younger leaders, and the church is still thriving, so we're grateful for that. And we were uncertain what that next chapter would look like for us. And uh, if I'm honest, I had no idea that that would take us across the country to the other Washington uh, in D.C. 
but we've always cared about issues of poverty, of hunger, of justice issues and vulnerability. And uh, we began this conversation with Bread for the World. The last two weeks since that news was announced has been, uh, it's been really uh good, but also really intense because of COVID-19 and Bread for the World, as uh, you certainly know, and for those that are listening don't know, uh, Bread for the World, there's so much advocacy behind the scenes with lawmakers advocating for the hungry, the poor, the vulnerable. And so during this whole, I guess, various rounds of stimulus bills, we've been working behind the scenes, really trying to encourage lawmakers to be mindful of those who are particularly vulnerable during this time. So it's been a crash course to, to bread for the world. Well, stepping away from a church you founded um, has to be difficult. I experienced that two years ago. Um, you know, there's a lot of pastors listening to this podcast, many of which struggle with a very difficult decision like, like you had to make. Um, so what can you tell them about how to know when it's the right time to leave a church they're serving in a healthy way? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we have a lot of conversations within church leadership about starting well because we live in a very entrepreneurial culture that elevates, you know, innovation and creativity. And, and certainly we should have those conversations. But at least for me growing up in my early years as a church pastor and leader, I just rarely, I don't know if I've ever heard conversations about ending well. And, you know, while I'm not necessarily much of a runner anymore. I used to run when I was younger. And we all know that when you're running a race, whether it's a 5K, whether it's a, it's a half marathon or a marathon, you know, every part of the race matters. How you start, how you run in the middle, how you go up those hills when it feels so laborious, and certainly how you end well. And so I think just our health, our, our, our intimacy with Christ, healthy relationships with our spouses, if we're married, our friends, our family, I think all of that matters. And, you know, for my wife and I, our prayer has, has always been, uh, God, we want to make a transition. If there is a transition uh, at, a, at a point when we feel like there's flourishing and health, not just in the life of the church, but also as well. And I think if we focus on our personal flourishing and certainly our leadership as well, um, but as, as, as uh, when it comes to discernment, you know, we don't have to make that decision alone. We can do it with those that we've partnered with in confidence. Um, but it's not an easy decision, but it's always a good reminder that the church never belonged to us, even though, you know, we poured our heart and lives into it. Uh, it's always belonged to God. And we're grateful that when it's all said and done, we can just keep surrendering both our leadership and our respective congregations to God. You're the visionary behind One Day's Wages. Tell us, for those that aren't familiar, a little bit more about it and how um, being the visionary behind it prepared you to take the role at Bread for the World. Yeah, for those that are listening, I'd love to encourage them to check out OneDaysWages.org. It's an organization that uh, our family started about 10 years ago, just in response to the realities of extreme poverty around the world. Uh, we wanted to do something, spend some time praying about what we could do as a family, and uh, just had no uh, idea that the Holy Spirit would convict my wife and I, just even separately, to give up a year's wages. Uh, I say that not to sound boastful, but that was just what we sensed in our spirit. 
Uh, we didn't have a year's wages under our mattress or in our bank account. So it took us on a journey of three years of saving, simplifying, selling off things that we didn't need. Uh, and we just learned so much during that time. I think sometimes when we do ministry, leadership, or justice work, when we feel like God calls us to something, uh, in our imagination, we think it's because God wants us to change something or someone. Uh, and while that might be partly true, um, I think we've also learned that God really wants to change us as well. And that's really been the biggest learning um, lesson for us in starting One Day's Wages. It's a really small grassroots movement where we're trying to inspire people around the world to give up at least one day's wages, whether it's once a year or once a quarter or once a month. And uh, we've had about, gosh, 13, 14,000 people around the world that have given collectively over $8 million. And then we invest all of that in carefully vetted projects around the world. Um, but I think the thing, the, thing that, the thing that I've learned the most during this time is just God cares about people and not just, obviously he cares about everyone, but he especially cares about those who are vulnerable, those who are hungry, uh, those that are oftentimes forgotten on the margins of our culture and in our larger world. As you look ahead to your start at Bread in, in June, um, Obviously, this current crisis um, changes maybe some of the plans uh, you had, um, but what's your, your vision for leading there? Well, as, as you know, uh, Brett has been around for nearly 50 years. You know, I think they're around year 45, and there's an incredible deep history, legacy, leadership, uh, culture that, are, that is part of Brett. And so I think for me, I'm simply joining in what God's already been doing. Um, and I'm really grateful for that legacy and that leadership. I have a lot to learn. Um, I feel confident that there are skills and creativity and imagination that I bring in. But I also realize that there's new muscles that I have to learn to, to flex and develop over the coming months and years. They have an amazing team, an amazing team of grassroots organizers that are working within communities. We have folks that work on Capitol Hill, engaging with a level of civility and respect, our elected leaders. We have an incredibly, just a robust think tank um, that does so much research around issues that help develop policies as well. And so in terms of vision, we want to make sure that as we do this work, we want to be able to engage the Capitol C Church. Uh, to invite more people, including younger people, to join in our efforts. Uh, and then people of all ages and backgrounds and denominations, we want it to be a really broad umbrella, um, but particularly engaging those that don't see uh, advocacy as part of our discipleship. Now, I don't know about you, but at least for me, especially in my 20s and early 30s, it never came into my theological construct that advocacy was an important part of our discipleship. I think Christians often do this. Uh, we do compassion well. Uh, we do mercy uh, somewhat well. But it, when it comes to like structural, institutional engagement and advocacy, uh, we often see that as just merely um, political. And I think it's really important for us to try to engage the capital C church uh, to give them a framework about why that matters so much. All right. As you jump from one coast to the other, if you're honest, 
What are you going to miss most about Seattle and Washington? Oh, man, this in itself could be the entire podcast. (laughs) You know, yeah, I this is I'm stumbling with my words because this has really been one of the biggest and hardest decisions for my wife and I. We have three kids, two in college, and our youngest is a junior in high school. And so, you know, when I begin uh, my role as president in July, um, I'll be commuting for one year. And Fred was gracious to allow us to do that because we wanted our son to graduate high school here. But when we leave, we'll be actually leaving all of our kids here. And uh, that was not what we envisioned in our 10-year plan. You know, we had convinced them to go to school locally in Seattle so that we could be close as a family. And so they have been giving us a hard time since. Like, how could you sucker us to stay and not you guys are leaving? Um, but beyond family and friends and our community, um, Seattle is a beautiful place. It's the only city that we've known as a family. Um, I'm going to miss the... Uh, the Pacific Ocean, the mountains, the lakes, uh, the rivers, the topography of this place. As someone that loves the outdoors, um, there's not many places that are as beautiful as Seattle. Um, so I'm sure D.C. has other things that are beautiful as well, but that would be uh, one of the adjustments I'll need to make. No, I mean... Look, I, I grew up on the East Coast and been to D.C. There, there's some great places to visit. Uh, I certainly recommend you go down to the North Carolina mountains while you're in D.C. But uh, no, I mean, nothing compares to the state of Washington. You, you summed it up pretty, pretty well. It's like you got the mountains. Oh, and by the, by the way, the beach is right there. And, uh, you know, and then you have the rock formations that are in the water that make it look like the mountains are in the water. So yeah, not to make not you're, to make it worse on you to dump it on you, but yeah, yeah. I, that, I, was, I, mean, I was just gonna say, yeah. <laughs> you're not making you're not making this move easier. Now, now DC does have a great culinary scene. You know, you can get uh, different types of food from from all over the world, but uh, certainly, um, you know, nothing like uh, the fresh seafood you can get in Seattle. So, um, well, I, I'm going to take advantage of my. Um, my taxpayer privileges and get free admission to these museums in DC. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's extraordinary. It's definitely a place of culture, just a different, different kind of culture. So this CBF podcast is presented to you by the center for congregational health at the center. We help lay leaders, clergy, and congregations find ways to thrive in the midst of change. Our experience in highly trained consultants and coaches don't prescribe one size fits all solutions. Instead, we work alongside you and take your unique congregation and ministry context seriously. We believe the wisdom for thriving comes from the leadership of the Spirit. We help create the spaces for congregations to hear and recognize that God-given wisdom. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in ministry. Well, we, right. we'll be thinking of you as, as you make that transition. Now, you have a new book out. Uh, thou shalt not be a jerk. Sorry. I felt like I was a jerk after like pointing out like, yeah, DC is not the same thing as Seattle. Okay. So, uh, thou shalt not be a jerk, a Christian guide to engaging politics. Uh, this work is an invitation for Jesus followers to enter with the political dialogue with civility and love and conviction. And you wrote politics matter because politics informs policy. 
that ultimately impacts people. And when I read the Bible, it emphatically, it's emphatically clear that people matter to God, including especially people who are marginalized, oppressed, forgotten, and on the fringes of our larger society. Walk us through uh, where the conception of this book sparked for you. Well, uh, there's multiple reasons why um, I labored through this book. And I should just note, uh, in writing this book, I actually quit writing it four times. It uh, was the longest, most difficult process. And I quit writing it because as I was working on it, I was just imagining all the criticism and pushback that I would receive from people, uh, that I was being too liberal, too conservative, too fundamental, to whatever it might be. And Sometimes I think when you're trying to live faithfully in tension to some, you're just going to be too conservative, and to others, you're going to be too liberal. And I think for us as Christ followers, we're just trying to learn what it means to be faithful in tension, to walk with integrity, and ultimately uh, to be faithful uh, to Christ and to love people well. Uh, So the book, uh, The Genesis, is just myself as a follower of Jesus trying to be a good citizen and also trying to be a good, faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And then as a pastor, you realize that if I'm not discipling my congregation, if I'm not discipling Jesus' followers around the intersections of faith and politics, and I'm not suggesting that politics is the answer to all things, but we know that politics is kind of a fancier word for how communities of people engage in governance And we need healthy governance for a healthy society to flourish. And I realize that if I abdicate the discipleship around politics, uh, because in the church we hear phrases like, you know what, pastors shouldn't talk about politics, we shouldn't engage politics. And I think that's partly true, but also really dangerous. We should never obsess about politics. We should never um, go to bed with political parties. We should never be a puppet of certain systems and structures. But when we abdicate the responsibility of discipling our congregation, uh, we should know that they're being discipled by someone else, some TV station, some TV pundit, some cable news. And I'm not trying to vilify news or journalists or cable news. I'm just suggesting that Uh, It's a dangerous thing to abdicate that responsibility. So it's for that reason that I kind of labor through this book in hopes of creating something uh, that would be of both encouragement and a challenge to the Capital C Church. One of the most challenging charges from the book is to have perspective and depth. And you wrote, Christians, we do not need to center our faith, politics, or emotions on these social hot-button issues, and let's not waste a moment with um, positively menial stuff, like getting up in arms about the design that appears or does not appear on a Starbucks cup at Christmas time. So how does one discern what is a social hot-button issue and what seems theological? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not trying to suggest that um, only certain things matter, but I feel like if we're not careful, what politics has become is that, you know, for some, maybe even for myself, like we've reduced the totality of all things important uh, to just one particular issue. And so I think some people call this single issue voters. And I think when we 
become susceptible to that kind of thinking, then we become, or it's easy to be manipulated by politicians or by systems and structures. And I just think we need to have a larger ethic about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger and greater than one particular issue. Now, it doesn't mean that that issue, whatever it might be, is not important. Uh, but at the same time, we uh, just need to engage um, life, I think, comprehensively, holistically. Uh, I think an example that I share uh, with a lot of you know, uh, tension or reticence in the book is you know, I'm a, a pro-life Christian. It's an extremely important um, conviction for me. I write about some of that in the book. I write about my experience speaking at Evangelicals for Life, a conference in D.C. a few years ago. But as I care also about that issue, I also believe that I want to have a more uh, comprehensive ethic about the sanctity of life that begins at womb, but also ends at the tomb, this whole womb-to-tomb ethic of the sanctity of life. Uh, that would be an example of, again, just trying to have a, a broader perspective on the particular hot issues of our times. Now, you talk about the kingdom of God and its implications for politics. You wrote, the kingdom of God is all around us in the beauty and pain of the world. Jesus proclaimed that his kingdom was already here and not yet to come, attention by which we await for the future glory while being invited into God's redemptive work in the world. I think for, for many Christians, the concept of the kingdom is centralized on the evangelical concept of heaven um, more than Jesus' actual kingdom teachings and ministry and parables. Do you think this leads a, a lot of heaven-centric believers to disregard the implications of the kingdom now, specifically politically, and if so, then how, how do you nudge people to a kingdom now mentality? Hmm. Well, I feel like your question, in a sense, provides a really important answer that it's tempting to be fatalistic and to have a theological bent that ignores the realities of both beauty, but also suffering and pain in our world right now. I think clearly uh, how I articulate this theology of the whole gospel. Like, I never want to disregard the power and the truth that Jesus saves. And as Christians, even living in a very fast-changing, pluralistic world, for myself as an evangelical Christian, I will never be timid about that gospel news that Jesus saves, that he comes to rescue sinners like me and others that are listening. But I also want to be careful not to reduce the profoundness of the gospel simply to a ticket into heaven. And I think that could be the dangerous theology, because I think it's a false theology when we reduce the gospel, the kingdom of God, merely into an entrance, an admission, a ticket into heaven. So I think to your question, it is very dangerous. And so I think what we need to do is not to utilize fear, guilt, or shame, but we need to engage people with love, with respect, with civility, but also with Scripture. I think Scripture is so integral because Scripture helps us to form our theology that then forms the way that we behave and live. And as we're now approaching soon 
Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, I think it's really noteworthy that Jesus doesn't take a straight path uh, from wherever he is straight to the cross. But even in his final week, we see him entering into Jerusalem on a donkey to symbolize a different kind of king that he is. He washes the feet of his disciples. He flips tables to confront corruption and hypocrisy. Uh, He heals people. He teaches people. And so the kingdom of God is so much more profound, so much more greater and deeper uh, than the good news that Jesus saves. Jesus saves, but we also believe that Jesus is at work. Uh, redeeming, restoring, reconciling things here on this earth until that one day, uh, I believe, when he returns to restore all things back unto himself. And we've heard this phrase more and more in the last few years. We live in such a polarizing political climate. And with each party entrenched on their respective sides, does it make sense for Jesus' followers to pick a political side? Um, Or is there a better way? And if there is a better way, what is that way? Well, I I wish. um, I hope there's a better way. And not to say that this book offers the answer to that better way, but it really is the motivation behind the book. I'm not trying to knock on friends that I have or those who have affiliated with a political party. I just think that it's a blasphemous thing, at least from a Christian worldview, to think that a particular political party has a monopoly on the kingdom of God. And so growing up sometimes way back then, you know, I'm turning 50 this year, but when I became a Christian at the age of 18, I was just told, don't ask questions when it comes to politics. Christians simply and must always vote Republican. Now, living in Seattle right now, that has a reputation of being very progressive and liberal. I hear the actual opposite of that. Like, if you're a real Christian and you're a woke Christian, a justice minded Christian, then you must vote a Democrat. And so I think that it's incredibly dangerous to adhere to this mentality, this view that a Christian must have and express blind loyalty to a particular party. That would be one. I think the second thing is that you're right. We're living in a very polarized, very, very intense uh, culture that tends to demonize and vilify others. And I think it's not just what we believe, but how we engage in our behavior. Are we exemplifying the fruits of the Spirit? Are we walking with integrity? Are we walking with gentleness and humility? Are we able to engage? When the Bible speaks about loving your enemies and turning the other cheek, I don't think Jesus was being metaphorical about these things. We're called to live in a radically different way and not just think or believe differently, but we're also called to act differently. And it feels really countercultural, but I think that's the point of what it means to be light and salt. You just hit on this there, and you certainly challenge your readers to love people, especially those we don't see eye to eye with. And this seems especially challenging when it comes to stepping into the political arena. Um, what's, what's been the most challenging aspect of loving others, especially those who are passing legislation that hurts the neighbors you love? 
Well, um, this is not, this is going to definitely be um, a constant learning challenge. But when the Bible speaks about loving your neighbors, I think there's, there's a couple components to this. Uh, it makes sense that the stories and the parables that Jesus uses to love our neighbors, uh, he uses, for example, Samaritans because they were not seen as neighbors. They were not seen as those who bear the image of God. And so I have to remind myself that when the Bible encourages me, exhorts me, challenges me to love my neighbors, it's not just those that look like me, think like me, feel like me, worship like me, and even vote like me. So I want to make sure that I'm humanizing even the people that uh, vehemently disagree with certain convictions that I believe are consistent or parallel um, what I believe Scripture teaches about the vulnerable and marginalized. Uh, I think one of the ways that I've been taught and mentored to do this is to always keep praying for people. And praying for people doesn't just change, I think, what I want that person to experience, but it keeps my heart tender and teachable. It keeps my heart more in tune to the kingdom of God. And so even if I may not agree with whoever is president of the country or the mayor of my city, uh, I make it a regular habit every single day to try to pray for my mayor and to pray for the president of this country. Now, having said that, I think we're also trying to love our neighbors who are being impacted by legislation and policies as well. And I also want to make sure that we're humanizing their stories, that it's not some nebulous concept. You know, even right now, it's stunning to me how we have these sweeping generalizations about, uh, quote unquote, the poor in our country. We think there are folks that are abusing the welfare system. People are lazy. People are out here to steal jobs and the list goes on. And I think sometimes we allow fear to take hold of our hearts. And then uh, that in itself is very contrary to what God's calling us to do. So I think the effort has to be multifold. That I want to make sure that I'm not vilifying people that are passing legislation that might be contrary to what I believe. But I also want to make sure that this book is not permission for us to be passive or silent. We need to be active and engaged and to speak both pastorally and prophetically on issues that are impacting real human people. Now, you write about advocacy and certainly, you know, heading to bread for the world uh, organization is based around advocacy. And um, I mentioned you earlier, ironically, we were in Washington, D.C. at the bread for the world office the day your hire was announced as part of our annual advocacy and action event. And, and that day I met with two of my senators and one of my House representatives, and I discussed with them uh, the challenges of the in industrial environmental impact on Louisiana health, the privatization of education in Louisiana, how that's being affected um, and, and is affecting negatively public education and the corruption of, of payday lending to Louisiana citizens. And yet for many people, the, the thought of advocating uh, or healthy legislative changes is very intimidating. So walk us through uh, how you got started in advocacy, um, as well as how someone uh, new to it can warm up to the idea of being a part of it? Great question. Um, 
And thank you so much for, you know, partnering with Bread, for being at uh, our offices. I actually do recall seeing you as a group together, and I wish I had taken a moment to say hello. That would have been such a fun experience. Um, you know, I think we have to just name that there is an element of it that feels intimidating. And the reason is because we haven't been discussing its importance within the church. So it feels like an elective. It feels like a tertiary. It feels like something that experts do, if you will. And while there are people who have devoted their life uh, in kind of gaining knowledge and, and the how-tos of this matter, the reality is every Christian should see themselves as an advocate, speaking up for those who might not necessarily, like, I, I truly believe uh, know that everybody has a voice but not everyone is heard and that in itself is the whole injustice of our system so what bread does and what we think christians should do is think about where the suffering where oppression where marginalization where uh, silence takes place particularly around issues that are near and dear to god's heart so theologically and biblically we believe when you read the old testament it's amazing how God's love for justice, it's not just one or two or three occasions. We have over 200 references of God's commitment, conviction, passion, his inclination towards the poor, the widows, uh, the orphans, and such. So once we understand that it's biblical and it's something near and dear to God's heart, we need both Christians and also leaders to be regularly talking and discussing and teaching and preaching about these things. But in terms of the how, sometimes it really begins with partnership. We don't have to do these things alone. We can partner with local agencies, national agencies like Bread for the World. We can work with grassroots organizers and activists. And it happens with phone calls. It happens with writing letters. I've had numerous conversations with lawmakers in different uh, spheres of both city, national, uh, and state governance. And one of the things that I hear every single conversation is, thank you for coming. Please tell your constituents that your phone calls, your letters, your visits, they absolutely matter. And so we actually need to tell people that our letters and our phone calls and our meetings, it has an impact on those who are engaged in the whole lawmaking process. I guess, you know, the last thing that I'll just share as a plug for Brad is, you know, because we've been doing this now for nearly 45 plus years, um, we just love empowering and equipping uh, Christians, the capital C church, uh, to partner with us. Um, to join us on our advocacy days, to join us in writing letters, to follow us in social media as we kind of coach and train people what to say and how to engage it, and certainly to become a monthly member of the work that we do. As you think about this book, uh, how can it be a resource to local churches? How do you imagine them using it? Uh, there's probably three main ways, and it, you know, in the short months that it's been out, um, it's been encouraging to see it used in these three ways. I think there's just folks that are going to read it individually, uh, especially during many people that are kind of isolated or staying at home during this COVID-19 crisis. There are people that are reading it. 
um, engaging some of the questions that are at after each chapter. Uh, there are folks that are reading it as a small group, either as a book club or as a small group within their own communities or churches. And that's been really encouraging to receive people sending Zoom shots of eight people discussing the book. And, and, then, and then finally, it's been really encouraging to see pastors reach out to say, uh, honestly, they'll just say, no, I don't agree with you on every issue. And that's okay, right? That's okay for us. It, it's impossible for us to agree on every single issue, but it's been so encouraging for me because I want to uh, encourage my fellow pastors and leaders uh, and to hear them say, uh, I'm going to be using this book as part of a teaching series uh, at our congregation. And I think mindful of the fact that uh, we are engaged in an election season right now. So those are the, the ways that I'm hoping. Um, but ultimately, it's because I see this not as a, it's not a politics book. Uh, it's, it's not a politics book at all. I see this as a discipleship book. And I'm really hoping and praying that this helps leaders disciple their particular uh, congregation. And for general readers, what's your greatest hope for them? Uh, to not be a jerk, mic drop. Um, no, I, I think it's, yeah, we, we want to love well and to be good citizens, to be faithful followers of Jesus. You know, um, I'm constantly reminded that we live in a broken Friday world. Sometimes it feels like the chaos and the uncertainty of a silent Saturday world. But I think this book is a reminder that we're resurrection people living in a broken Friday and at times a silent Saturday world. We have the hope of the gospel that Jesus is risen. So we have to remind ourselves that we are indeed resurrection people, but not to be so naive to think that all we're thinking about is the glory of heaven but to acknowledge the fact that we live in our current world where there are examples of both beauty, uh, but also uh, hardship and challenge and suffering. And so I hope that in that uh, perspective, that this book inspires, encourages, equips, uh, just as a personal guide for myself. And I share about this in the book, but um, I'm not necessarily a big fan of alliteration, but uh, these four words that begin with P have really just guided me in my life as a Christian, as a leader, and it's my desire to be pastoral, uh, to be prophetic, uh, to be practical, and then to also make sure that it's personal so that I'm not just a talking head, but I'm also living it out as well. Well, if you want to stay connected with Eugene, visit eugeneshow.com. Of course, follow him on social media. Go out and purchase Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk, wherever books are sold. Eugene, thank you for your willingness to let us learn from your theological and vocational discernment as we all seek to be led by the Spirit of God to be more faithful to God's kingdom here and yet to come. Well, Andy, thank you again so much for the privilege of being on this podcast to encourage one another. And again, I want to just thank your listeners for engaging with this podcast and my book. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites, fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, 
advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff.